Oh, I like to. I don't like to transplant people, but that's what I do for a living. Uh, and I always forget to thank people, but transplant and treating these patients is a complex, complex endeavor. And there's a lot of physicians mentioned here, the leukemia team, the transplant team. I think it behooves me to thank the, the people who really take care of the patients on the unit, the nursing staff, the nurse practitioners, the PharmDs, our research staff, all the patients, uh, all the people going from the cleaning ladies, the uh, administrators, it's a complex, complex thing and we cannot thank them enough because they are on the front lines. Without further ado, uh, so who do we transplant? The simple daily question is the patient that Dr. Robas and Dr. Desai sent to me for transplant. <laughs> when the patient comes from the outside, then walk across the hall and ask Dr. Robas and Dr. Desai what they think about the patient. So this is a patient who came to me from outside, referred by an excellent oncologist here in the city. And she was a 50-year-old female who presented with pancytopenia and fever. She had a fairly classic ALL, but it expressed CD34, it expressed CD19, partial CD20, uh, partial TDT, it's a little bit unusual with a, a CD34, but not unheard of. Uh, karyotype was normal, but by FISH there was a monosomy 7 found. Uh, loss of immunoglobin in heavy chain was found, and an ETV6 deletion by molecular typing. Past medical history, she originally came from Russia and she had been exposed to radiation during the Chernobyl accident. And it's very possible that this is a therapy or a secondary ALL which has been reported. She also has hypothyroidism, otherwise she's a healthy person. Oncologists gave her hyperceive at 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, and then he found that she was in remission and uh, by flow, by fish, and he sent her to us for transplant. So should we transplant this patient? When one thinks about transplant, sometimes Dr. Robas and Dr. Desai read the same papers that I do, sometimes we read slightly different papers or we read them differently. Um, and we, I'll talk about the way I see it and perhaps that's not the, the right way, but regardless of um, regardless of the specific disease, a number of issues that always come up and that I will spend relatively little time is, do they have a donor? Are they fit for transplant? What conditioning do, do we use? Let me quickly go over that. So the donor, this day and age, doesn't matter anymore. We really have a donor for everybody. We find we still prefer HLA identical donors. We but unrelated HLA identical donors, all almost common, uh, practically have a similar outcome as related donors. And then for those, the many, many patients who lack either matched related or unrelated matched donors, the outcomes with alternative donors, be it umbilical cord blood cells supported by third-party cells as we use, or haploidentical cells, the outcomes have improved dramatically. So the effect of donor choice is no longer a big deal. And just to give you a, an idea here, uh, these are from the IBMTR matched related donor versus matched unrelated donor. On the right side, in early disease, Patients over the age of 18 transplanted between 2004-2014, 3,000 patients, 
3,000 patients, outcomes in early disease transplant and in first remission, quite similar. It really doesn't make a difference anymore in this worldwide registry. Another point of note is, of course, we transplant patients with relapse disease, and we can cure some patients. They, here are survivals at two years, at three years, but you will admit that the survivals are not great. If we really want to make a difference with transplant, should we use transplant up front? And let me focus the rest of the talk about on this, in this patient who came to us with uh, in first remission. So another component of transplant is, is the patient fit for transplant? And that is an enormously complex issue. Is the patient frail? Is the patient healthy? Does the patient have comorbidities that prevent transplant? Those are things that occupy us a lot and that don't have clear answers. We're trying to develop those answers. And I'll come back more about that when I talk this afternoon about the AML. One issue that is completely unaddressed is the issue of social support, financial support. It's enormously important. It makes all the difference when you are when you have a family to take care of you during this difficult time versus not. And I think it makes an enormous difference also for our chemotherapies. So we, we don't talk about this enough, our healthcare system and so forth. As the patients age, mental acuity, uh, ability to deal with these issues also becomes important. We won't talk more about that here. Conditioning for ALL treatment. Complicated issue, I think the consensus is that for patients who tolerate it, uh, most transplant physicians will use the original TBI-based conditioning regimens. There are many, many patients who are either too old, too frail, don't have sufficient uh, pulmonary reserves to tolerate those, and we use reduced intensity conditioning quite frequently. Without, with that, back to the indication for transplant. And let me go back to what ALL is. This is the age-specific incidence rate of ALL. And as you see, we think of ALL as a, a pediatric disease, and it is because there's a blip here. But the age-specific incidence goes way up by, with increasing age. And over the age of 60, our risk of ALL is much higher than that of children. Vice versa, there's a lot more children in the world than older adults. As we age, we die, and many of us, uh, and none of us are going to live forever. And therefore, in absolute numbers, still the majority of patients with ALL are in the pediatric age group, by far. So most of what we've learned over the years uh, about transplant and about chemotherapy has often started in pediatric ALL. And the lessons learned, Dr. Desai talked about that, are in part well learned and others may not be so applicable. And back to outcomes, when we look at outcomes, this is now on the right side, the age-specific mortality, and there's very little mortality in children. Most children get cured. But in adults, we still have a big problem. And despite our optimism and all the new drugs, we continue to have a big problem. And one thing I'm not going to talk about, but there's an interesting paper just accepted in leukemia and lymphoma, where it says that a lot of older patients simply don't get treated. A lot of patients in the community over age 70 simply never get to treatment or just get a little bit prednisone and never get 
anywhere, and that does not come across in these studies. That said, we still have a problem in these older adults. So should we transplant this patient? Since our outcomes are not that great, a lot of people still relapse, should we transplant everybody? Randomized studies have been done where patients have been randomized to transplant or not, depending on the availability of a donor. And these are five studies back, mostly from the 90s, mostly randomizing patients that were younger, who had an HLA-identical sibling, assigning them to transplant, and others who didn't have that HLA-identical sibling to conventional chemotherapy. What were the outcomes of those trials? In all of them, a French trial transplant outcompetes uh, conventional chemotherapy. Transplant is better than conventional chemotherapy. The Japanese trial, similar, transplant similar to somewhat superior. Uh, another French trial, transplant superior. Uh, an ECOG trial, close, the data quite close to one another, and a Dutch-Belgian trial, transplant slightly superior. So should we say transplant is to be used? Patients live longer, these studies assign patients to transplant. I really don't think so. My conclusion from these trials that are widely cited is that they are no longer relevant, and they are not relevant mostly because they really address an a patient population that I don't deal with. The median age is around 30 or younger than 30. So these are really trials for pediatric transplant. And they are somewhat outdated, pediatric, very young adult. Does this apply to this 50-year-old? I don't think so, or not necessarily so. The most recent data that we tend to refer to are data generated by the Dana-Farber, I believe. And they looked at their patients over 40. And this is retrospective, so this was physician's choice. Some patients were referred with Philadelphia negative ALL in first remission for transplant, and others were given conventional chemotherapy. Patients with transplant tended to have a little bit more uh, high-risk disease. Uh, what did they see? On the upper left, relapse rates with transplant in blue were much lower than with conventional chemotherapy. But on the lower left, non-relapse mortality with transplant in dark versus non-transplant was, uh, was much higher. And overall, they did not find much difference in outcome. Retrospective institutional experience, but probably the only study that focuses on patients over the age of 40, which is the patient population that really gets referred to me. So it's not so clear that we should transplant everybody. They conclude perhaps the high-risk patients. Another study recently or a year or two ago, the Graal group is a French, Belgian, Swiss group. Um, they conduct prospective studies. And in this study, up to age 55, for once, patients not only with HLA identical siblings, but also the ones with unrelated donors were assigned to transplant. And most who had an unrelated donor or an HLA identical sibling uh, underwent transplant with a couple of exceptions. But again, with long-term follow-up, no difference in these studies for transplant, no great advantage. So should we transplant everybody? Although I'm a transplanter, I really don't think so, because 
let's not forget transplant can have serious long-term morbidities. Both chemotherapy and transplant have early toxicities, and uh, that would not the early toxicities would not sway me one way or another. What sways me in in avoiding transplants for some patients is the chronic morbidity that affects at least a percentage of our patients. There are patients who have chronic graft-versus-host disease and who, who never gain their health back, and that's unusual with chemotherapy. So we'd better have a serious advantage in survival for transplant to recommend it to everybody. And this is not a serious advantage. This is, at best, equivalence for these older patients. So. Repeating this, the routine use of allogeneic transplantation for CR1 adult ALL is probably not recommended in today's uh, day and age. And I, I think my leukemia colleagues will agree with that. So we should think how can we identify those patients who will benefit or who might benefit from transplant. So there are uh, biological characteristics, there are genetic cytogenetic characteristics, and I'm highlighting here a couple. There's the translocation 411, which is the MLL gene. There's a 14Q32 gene. There's Philadelphia-like ALL. Then in T-cell ALL, I won't show you the data, but there's an early T-cell precursor ALL that seems to have a poor prognosis with conventional chemotherapy. These are the data from MD Anderson, once again, Looking at their Philadelphia negative, I believe it's from MD Anderson, looking at their Philadelphia negative B-cell ALLs and subcategorizing them by cytogenetics. A lot have normal cytogenetics, no abnormality, other abnormalities. About 13% have this KMT2A, which in my understanding is MLL, but has been renamed, and about 5% have this 14Q32 uh, immunoglobulin gene rearrangement. Looking at their outcomes, the outcomes with hypersieve at mostly in B-cell ALL was quite good with the exception of these two groups. And this curve uh, does not take into account patients who underwent transplant. They were removed from the curve. So conventional chemotherapy, looking at the MLL gene rearranged once, there were only three long-term survivors. So that's not good. The results improved quite a bit for patients transplanted in first remission. So I would argue this is a disease that we probably should transplant in first remission, where transplant may benefit patients. Uh, the Philadelphia-like ALL, Dr. Desai already talked about it, much more difficult because more difficult to recognize, recognizable by certain molecular abnormalities of the JAK-STAT pathway, but, but in Icarus gene, but also by gene expression profile, not routinely available. But again, a rather poor prognosis group with conventional chemotherapy. And again, we are adding TKIs to these patients, but the long-term results are, uh, are unclear. I would argue these patients might benefit from a transplant. So we could, we could try to categorize this patient based on genetic, cytogenetic abnormalities, but she doesn't have any of these. So should I transplant her? She's in remission. So what we did is we repeated the bone marrow. 
and the bone marrow morphologically was in remission, but we sent the bone marrow for multi-parameter color flow cytometry for MRD detection. And, and Pinkel already talked about it, but this is becoming an increasingly important test. And some centers do use uh, next generation sequencing, other centers use uh, sophisticated flow cytometry, and I think uh, we, others know more about this than I do. But the fact of the matter is that this patient who was in remission by conventional, chemo by conventional flow cytometry and by morphology and by fish was not in remission. The multi-parameter flow cytometry clearly detected residual disease in 0.69% of the cells. And there were actually two clones, if you read this. There's a small population of phenotypically abnormal B cell precursors. And these cells have a very unusual phenotype. There are two related but distinctly abnormal population. So this for us was the reason to recommend the transplant for this lady. She was not in remission. And, but, and this is also supported. Why do we recommend the transplant? Looking back at this Graal study that I, already uh, that I already mentioned, that same group was one of the first large groups that used MRD detection, in this case by sequencing. And they found, and this is a little bit complicated slide, but there's four groups here. Ignore the lower slide. This is the progression-free survival. And the two upper curves are patients that were MRD negative, transplanted or not transplanted. MRD negative transplant did not make a bit of difference. So MRD negative could do very well with trans without the transplant. But MRD positive, the non-transplanted patients practically all relapsed. The transplanted patients benefited from transplant. So one should transplant an MRD-positive patient. And these data contradict a little bit other data that I'll show next, only one of many studies, that show that, yes, MRD-positive needs a transplant, don't do well with conventional chemotherapy, but there's other data, and this is just one of a number of studies, and there's more studies in pediatric ALL, uh, that show that MRD positivity at the time of transplant, although transplant benefits those patients more than chemotherapy, in most reported studies, there's still a high incidence of relapse if we transplant patients with MRD positive disease while the disease is present. So even that 1% of cells that is not detectable by morphology, is a harbinger in most studies of not such a great outcome. So we would want to get rid of that 1% or 0.5% of cells by further treatment. So that is and where blenatumumab comes in. And Dr. Desai already talked about this. And blenatumumab is an anti-CD19 bite antibody. Serious, uh, serious complications with the drug, but also high degree of efficacy. And in this study already mentioned by Dr. Desai, um, patients who were MRD positive received blenatumumab, and there were approximately 110 patients. And of these 110, MRD positive patients, 85 became MRD negative after one cycle. And then they were consolidated by transplant in most instances and did quite well. 
the, MR, the ones that remained MRD positive uh, went, uh, did not do so well. And we have seen this lady got MRD, uh, got blinatumumab, map, came back to us. Ooh, this is the wrong slide. Sorry, after blinatumumab, but this is incorrect. This is the right. This is the correct slide. Um, so after after blinatumumab, she was uh, MRD negative. So we then proceeded to a transplant. This lady had good financial support, good family support, was a healthy, relatively young person. We conditioned her with a TBI-containing regimen uh, using combination of TBI and etoposide. We use a lot of alemtuzumab, which prevents graft-versus-host disease. She had a matching unrelated donor. We gave post-transplantation tacrolimus. She did not have an easy time in the first four months. She had profound anorexia, lost a lot of weight. She had some CMV reactivation. She actually reactivated toxoplasmosis, which we monitor for. She overcame all that, uh, but we're now about seven months after transplant. She's in an ongoing remission, MRD negative, has no GVH. She's back to work and uh, leading a normal life. And uh, of course it's early days, but we, we think this can, this can last. Um, a word about Philadelphia positive ELL, perhaps unnecessary. Dr. Desai already mentioned it. So a lot of our patients have uh, adult have Philadelphia positive ALL increasingly. Ash, she said it was the stepchild. Uh, we used to transplant everybody when I started in this field and even transplant didn't do too well. Uh, things are changing for Philadelphia positive ALL. I think most of us use the same philosophy in older patients as we use in Philadelphia negative ALL, namely we go by MRD detection and we transplant patients either who remain MRD positive or who relapse after initial treatment. Uh, whether that will pan out over the next 10 years, I'm not sure. I'm sometimes worried that long-term exposure to these uh, TKIs, particularly the non-imatinib TKIs, may induce other problems, particularly vascular problems, that will then cost us dearly at the time that some of these patients relapse. And we've seen that in some patients already, but time will tell. Um, so in conclusion, um, the outcome of allotransplant for adult ALL is no longer determined by donor availability. That's a, a very minor issue in the big picture. And if I can get that message across, I think it's perhaps the most important one. Fitness of the patient is extremely important, but ill-defined. And uh, we struggle with that. The indications for transplant in an ALL are further determined by cytogenetic and genetic characteristics, and I mentioned some, the MLL gene, the 14Q32, possibly the Philadelphia-like patients, the early T-cell precursor ALLs, but a lot of what we do is, uh, a lot of the decision-making is now based on MRD assessment, which itself is a moving target, I would say. The technologies are um, changing. For MRD-positive patients, prior to transplanting, we induce them further with blinatumumab. There's a typo there. We've seen patients who failed blinatumumab, and we've gone on to inotuzumab and gotten them in remission. 
with that, and then, then the question becomes also, does the transplant become too toxic, because this is a major risk factor for post-transplant VOD. Tisagen Leclucel is now available at our institution uh, commercially. The big problem with that, you heard about all the side effects and that's real. The, the other problem is a, there's a lot of financial and fiscal issues and, and the biggest limitation is this, this age limit. Uh, it's 25 and over, so 25 and 364 days one gets reimbursed, 26 and one day we cannot get reimbursement for this drug outside of trials and that's a big problem. With that, thank you for your attention.